0: Good morning, always a privilege to stand in the pulpit and declare God's word, but I need help, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder, this great reminder of your great love, which you have lavished upon us with your grace and your mercy giving us faith that we could believe that the blood of the Son of God could cover all of our sins. Thank you for that simple truth, Lord, that gives us life, that gives us hope, and that gives us eternal life. So, Lord, we ask your help, your spirit to be unleashed, your word to be unfolded by you most of all that we might look at ourselves and see who we are and then look to you, the author, Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you for what you did, and we pray in your most holy name, amen. My jumping off text, which I don't like to do per se, but uh, this message is about examining ourselves. And I'm going to use several texts. In fact, the whole Bible is full of this. Old Testament and new. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's all over the Bible. So I'm just going to uh, uh, share a few of those texts. And the first one is going to be 2 Corinthians 13. If you want to follow along Verses 5 through 10. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. And I'll let you get there. 2 Corinthians 13, the last chapter. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you may be made complete. For this reason, I am writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Now, I'd like to piggyback on what our pastor shared with us last week. Uh, If you weren't here, uh, he was talking about false teachers, false prophets, I'm one of those persons who's concerned about the church at large. It has been infiltrated with a lot of sloppy thinking and wide-eyed ideas. Much of this comes from a lack of good hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the art, the science, the practice of biblical interpretation. And I'm convinced that it is a major weakness in the church at large today And not given enough attention when doctrine is formulated. It's not the only reason for the mixed-up doctrinal state of the church at large. Peter and Jude and John tell us other reasons for false prophets and false teachers. And it's interesting that the last six or seven books of the Bible address the issue of false teachers. And by the way, I'm I'm in Revelation five today, my three-year journey on reading through the Bible and it's, it's, it's a blessing just to come to the end and be able to, to read the end. So we need to take heed and be wary of such men and women, that is those who are false teachers and false prophets. The truth shall set us free, not error. And all of us are full of some form of error. Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't have my eschatology down tight. <laughs> He's a coming, I'm a going. Let's get ready. <laughs> that doesn't dismiss all of the different, you know, all millennialism and post-millennialism and premillennial and pre-tribulum and all the rest of that stuff. But my point is we need to adhere to strict and good doctrine. Paul calls it healthy and sound doctrine. It's for our good. Charles Spurgeon once said discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and almost right, and that's what we're dealing with because some of these brothers and sisters say some good things and say the truth, but couched in that truth is error, and so thank you, Pastor, for that message, and like he said, he could have kept going, and he could have had two hours' worth and maybe even more. So it's important to examine everything, and as, as Paul told the Thessalonians, however, we only have so much time and energy, and there's something else perhaps more important to examine, and that is ourselves. So that's the focus of this morning's message. This is the message of Paul to the Corinthians, both in First and Second Corinthians, First Corinthians 11, verse 27. Paul says this, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. I'm not sure what that means exactly, but I have a feeling. A man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. So we have this exhortation in 1 Corinthians for the Corinthians to examine themselves when they take communion. But there's a broader examination. And that's what Paul deals with in 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves, test yourselves, look at yourselves very closely. That is not easy to do. Now, about a month or two ago, I'm not sure how long ago, seems like this summer just merged into July and August, and now it's September. But the street that I live on, High Street, uh, had a catastrophe, and that was there was a storm on a Sunday night, and it washed out the road. And in order to get to church, I had to go Elm Hill, Nickel Street, and then, and it took me about 10 minutes. So, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, it wasn't too bad. However, that incident really alerted me to looking at highways in a very different manner. Remember all that rain? And as I would drive, I would see the rain, and I would look at the the highway and at the civil engineering that had been taking place, and I'm not, I'm not scientific at all. So, But I was just perusing and just thinking, wow, these guys did good. And then there were some spots where the water was coming, and it was really coming, and it wasn't going fast enough, and you had to go. Th- and I thought, well, maybe the engineering wasn't that good. And my point is this. I don't look at highways and examine the roadway, but I did. How about you? Your own life. Do you examine yourself? Do you look at yourself? Do you uh, weekly or monthly or maybe yearly say, hmm, I need to look deep down inside. So this morning we're going to do that. We're going to look at three aspects of self-examination from the Scriptures, and hopefully you'll be encouraged Not discouraged. First of all, we're going to look at the motivation for doing so. That's the why. Why should we look into ourselves? Secondly, we're going to look at the process by which we test ourselves. That's the how. How do we do this? And then thirdly, the benefits and the blessings that come from looking inwardly. So first of all, our motivation for doing so. Our eternal destiny is totally dependent on whether or not we are truly Christians. Everything depends on how we're related to God. There's a story of a, a preacher in England in the 1800s. William Haslan was his name. He contracted a disease of the lungs and he began reading his prayer book. A common book of prayer, I imagine, Anglican. After his recovery, he decided to become a clergyman. And for years, he labored in his parish, erecting a church building, trying to get people to come. But Haslam only had head knowledge of the gospel. He had never truly been saved. One day, the gardener of the church fell ill and was pronounced a dying man. And Haslam had nothing to say to comfort this man. But a Christian neighbor led the dying man to the joy of eternal salvation. Haslam was troubled, for he knew something was missing in his heart. Bedeviled by this frustration, he rose to preach one Sunday in 1851, and he took his text from Matthew 22:42, 42, What think ye of Christ? And as he spoke, his inner conscience was telling him, You are no better than the Pharisees. As he kept preaching, his face Changed. His heart began to leap and he looked upward and something happened within him. A man in the congregation, seeing the change, stood up and shouted, The parson is converted. (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) Instantly, several hundred attenders began praising God and they sang the doxology. At least 20 people were saved that day and others were saved as news spread of the preacher. Who had been converted by his own sermon oh we need to be motivated to examine ourselves to look at ourselves we are truly dead people and only god can make us alive so it's important for us to examine ourselves to see that we are in the faith truly in the faith are we still dead in our trespasses and sins or have we been made alive by the Holy Spirit who comes into us to give us life and causes us to be born again? Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, Paul says, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? I'm speaking to each person here, children included. Is Jesus Christ in you? Do you know that? Second motivation we have to examine ourselves is because there is a God in the heavens, and He is watching. Turn with me to Psalm 11. Psalm 11, which Tom read this morning, has our psalm, and an intro into our worship. I preached on this psalm last summer And I only got through the first three verses. So I have kind of a mixed motivation here to finish out the psalm, but it fits in perfectly with what we're looking at. Psalm 11, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in the darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And that's where I ended my main point in that sermon was we need to trust the Lord in the midst of chaos and the madness that we're going through. But there's a second part of the psalm, and the reason we can trust in our God is because of who he is. So let's peer into the latter part of this psalm and and just learn a few things about our God that motivate us. To examine ourselves. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. God is holy. He is separate from us. He is in a place separate from us. The angels adore him. The saints adore him. And if you read Revelation, they're worshiping him always, always, always. Now remember, God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. So that's hard for us humans to understand that he's everywhere. There's no place in the universe that his presence isn't. And yet God is in the heavens and his son sits at the right hand of the throne of God. So God is holy. He's also omniscient. Look what it says. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, God sees. He sees into the deepest recesses of our inner soul. And so we should look there too. There's no hiding from him. Adam and Eve tried, people try, we try, but there's no hiding from God. So what motivation if God sees all, then we need to look into our hearts. Remember Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, is able to pierce as far as the vision, a soul and spirit of both joint and marrow, is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. For there is no creature hidden from his sight, for all is open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do god sees our every motive our every action everything within us and so we're motivated i think as a reflection of being made in the image of god to look at ourselves also analyze and then lastly if you look at the last part of this psalm the one who loves violence well verse five the lord tests the righteous and the wicked the one who loves violence his soul hates that's a strong word Not often used of God, but used enough. And I'll share why I think it's used here. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. You've heard of fire and brimstone preachers, right? Well, all preachers should be fire and brimstone preachers because the Lord will rain fire and brimstone. And Revelation points to that. And there's a place for people who don't know him, who are not saved, who have not received the gift of salvation. And so we need to fear him, because God is just. He will mete out his wrath. It's a scary thought, and we need to take heed and fear him. Brenda's not here, but she memorized the verse that I asked you guys to memorize. She shared that with me. Proverbs nine, ten. Children, say this with me, all right? there's not too many of you but say it as loud as you can i'm going to say it and then you're going to say it ready the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom ready the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy one is understanding ready children and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Let's all say it together, adults also. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? I think it's a reverence, I think it's a a sense of His presence, His holiness, and we bow just like the angels, just like the saints in heaven. We're not afraid of God. John tells us in 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We're not afraid of God, but we fear Him. It seems paradoxical. God is love. He's loved us, and yet we need to fear Him, because that's the beginning of wisdom. Even though we're not afraid of him yet, Matthew tells us, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. And the last little glimpse of the Godhead here, he's holy, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's just, he meets out his wrath, we need to fear him. God is righteous. Look at verse 7. For the Lord is righteous, and he loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. God is righteous, and we have the righteousness of Christ if we are truly saved. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's why the upright, will behold his face because we have Christ's righteousness. This morning, my friend, I want to ask you, examine your life. Do you have the righteousness of Christ applied to you? When God looks at you, does he see Jesus or does he see you? And if he sees you, you're in trouble but you can take the righteousness of Christ upon you by saying, yes, Lord, what we did in communion. Yes, Lord, I accept your gift. I accept your sacrifice. I accept what you did on that cross to pay for my sins. And I'm yours. That's all. And we have the righteousness of Christ. And so we're motivated to look at ourselves because there's a God in the heavens looking down And because our eternal destiny is totally dependent upon our relationship with that God, Yahweh. Are you sons and daughters? Or are you illegitimate children who are his enemies and will one day incur his wrath? How you answer that question for yourself is the most important thing in the world. There is no more important question. That's motivation. Now let's look at the process. This is the how. How do we look at ourselves? You know, I, 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 have, a, I have a phone, and if I turn this on, I could look at myself now. When that happens accidentally, I turn it off real quick, put it in my pocket, because that's scary, all right? <laughs> my students, they're always, you know, they're looking, making sure, you know, and all that stuff. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> Paul asks us, Did you fail the test? Well, what's the test? How can we measure up? How do we evaluate the state of our soul? Well, I want to begin by saying there are many ways to do this, and I'll go through a couple of them. But the most important and the first way that I want to address the number way, one way is to look at the Word of God. James tells us how to do this in the first chapter of the book he wrote. Verse 21, if you want to turn to James 1:21, They didn't have these in those days. They had mirrors. And that's what he's going to use, looking at yourself. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Notice those words. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. We all look in the mirror every day, but do we truly look? I'm half blind, and so I can't see all the whiskers when I shave, and I miss them sometimes, and my light isn't very good. You know, but we need to look beyond the surface. We need to look into our souls. And James says, we're prone to looking and forgetting real quick. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Now, one of the greatest difficulties and doctrinal issues in our Christian faith is understanding the relationship of faith and works. James really addresses this issue in a very cogent manner. Martin Luther struggled with the book of James. I don't know if you know that. Um, And think about the context that he lived in. He he, he had come upon Romans uh, 1 and verse 17, the just shall live by faith. I think he also saw it in Galatians, the just shall live by faith. And he was troubled by what James said, that faith without works is dead. Now, I want to put that in a personal context, because it is a struggle, and I don't know if you struggle with faith and works. When I first got saved 1971, I shared the gospel with my mom. And she was Roman Catholic, and at the time, very devout Roman Catholic. And so I shared the gospel with her. I said, salvation's by faith, by grace. I don't have to do anything. God did it all. I received it, and it's mine. And here was her response. So you can do whatever you want? <laughs> now, I don't know if you got that. Tom did. But it was very profound of her in many ways because some Christians, they, they call them, uh, what do they call them? antinomians, Yeah, that's it. Uh, they believe that following the law isn't important. Right? That, that's long ago and far away, but it shows up, not with that name, but with that practice. Um, but mom's question was poignant. And so I said to her mom, no, uh, that's, that's not true, but uh, I, I was a very young Christian, so I didn't really know how to answer her. And now 50 years later, My mom came to know the Lord. She knows what salvation by faith is. And one time I shared with her a verse from Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. She had never seen that verse in her life. And she said, wow, and so Mary and the saints and the angels, and she realized, so there is hope for Catholics, I was one. Share with him. Um, Luther had the same struggle. Faith is shown by works. What, James? Come on, I just learned that I was saved by faith and that's a struggle. Well, Luther considered Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation to be disputed books, some say this, which he included in his translation, but he placed separately at the end of his New Testament published in 1522. Charles uh, uh, Ryrie uh, counters this claim and says that Luther did not reject James as non-canonical, but he did have different thoughts about James, and he said about James' epistle, it's a perfect straw epistle compared with Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, for it has nothing of an evangelistic mindset in it. And that was Luther's. Well, problem solved. Right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Not just 8 and 9, but 10. Anyone quote that for us? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. But then most people forget. Verse 10. For we... His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now Jesus put it in a different way. He talked about root and he talked about fruit. Right? Uh, Matthew chapter 13. I'm not going to read it, but you know the story. Sower went out to sow. Four different kinds of Seeds with four different results. And some fell on rocky places where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, they were scorched. Because they had no root, they withered away. They had no fruit. Others fell among the thorns and the thorns came up and choked them. And the implied Thought is no fruit, no root, no fruit. That's Jesus' teaching. And so our fruit, though it may vary from person to person, because it says the one who produced fruit, some 100-fold, some 60, and some 30, can vary. Some people, like uh, David Brainerd, I don't know if you know that name, missionary to the Indians in the early history, before the United States actually. He uh, he went to the native peoples and nothing happened. And then he went to the native peoples a second time and God just poured out his spirit and people were coming to Jesus Christ. This guy spent his life just trying to reach those native peoples. Well, he had tuberculosis and his blood used to be in the snow when he was on his horse. And, He eventually died of that. Jonathan Edwards' uh, daughter actually took care of him in the latter days of his his life. He was in his 20s, just spent for God, hundredfold. all right? You and I may be 60 or 30. It doesn't matter. The point is, we need to examine our lives and ask, do we have root? That's Jesus Christ and his salvation. And do we have fruit faith and works and what kind of works do we have brian was was sharing in sunday school um, that you know some works can be tried manufactured works attempts at pleasing god no 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 you got the root the fruit comes paul talks about it in galatians 5 it's all over the place right The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So how do you examine? How do you test yourself? You go to one of these texts. You go to the Word of God. And you look at your life and try to measure up. And if you see a flaw, and there will be a few, you see an area in your life where you need help, work on it. Ask God to help you with it. Uh, Confession, pride, and arrogance were those areas of my life in my early Christianity, and probably lasted 20 years, maybe 30, that I had to work on on a regular basis. I'm just now getting it. And I'm not sure I have it yet, but I'm I'm getting it. Uh, It always showed up on the basketball court. Played basketball from when I was 10 to when I was 60. And I didn't slow down till I was sixty, and then I said I can't play defense anymore, so I'm gonna stop, you know, because I had pride. <laughs> Should have kept playing. Two years later I had high blood pressure, and five years later I had zip-zip quadruple bypass, you know. So basketball saved me. But pride and arrogance came out. And I had to wrestle with that year after year. I had to confess to guys I played with that I blurted out things and that I was sorry for that. But God was not finished with me and he kept working on me. And he can work on you. Take an area of your life. Examine yourself. See what that area is. Your area of weakness. And work on it. That's the process. Now, part of the process is meeting with other Christians. Uh, Not just here in church, but Aaron and I are meeting as much as we can on a weekly basis, and we're iron sharpening iron. And uh, it takes a while to get to know someone. It takes vulnerability to be honest with them, but in time, that's a check on us, and we can examine each other. And of course, when we come to church, that's another way, part of the process. I don't care what Text you use, I don't care what part of the process you use, examine yourself. Make sure you do that on a regular basis so that your sanctification can increase and progress and that you can have treasures in heaven one day and He can say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. All right, just a few more minutes and I'll be done. On to the blessings and the benefits. The process of self-examination is very humbling. Sometimes it can be horrific. If you have some dark, dark places, and God exposes them, but He's the Redeemer. He's the Rescuer. He's the Helper. He's the Comforter. And He can take you in those horrific places and lead you to glory. But thirdly, not only is it humbling, sometimes horrific, it's very honoring to God. I really believe he wants us to do this. Remember that preacher in England that I started out, that story, that led to his salvation. He finally examined himself. Think about the church of of Revelation, the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. What is God saying? Examine yourselves, right? Ephesus, you lost your first love. Repent or I'm coming. Serious business. So what are the blessings? What are the benefits? One, assurance of our salvation. When we examine ourselves and look into our lives and see that there's root and there's fruit, we can sing with Fanny Crosby, blessed assurance Mm -hmm. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. First John tells us, he who have the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. Pretty simple. And these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the son of God in order that you may what? You may know that you have eternal life. Do you know This morning, without a doubt, you have eternal life. What a blessing and a benefit of examining ourselves. Secondly, confidence. Assurance and then confidence flows out of that. Confidence in our faith. Paul said, I know whom I believe in, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Oh, he also said in Philippians 1, 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, in me, will perfect it, will complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. He said later on in that chapter, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. And in the Greek, that's ume. No, 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 no. Well, it's no, no. But magnify it a hundred times. No, no way. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. Confidence. Confidence. Do you have that? That confidence in our faith, not in you, not in me. I go, I go into the enemy's snare 180 days out of the year. <laughs> I'm telling you. It hasn't gotten better, it's gotten worse. But I go there with confidence, great confidence, because Jesus Christ reigns. He lives in me, and I can touch other people's lives with him, so that their lives can be changed. Now, that's hard to do in my position, but God gives me opportunity from time to time. I just taught about the Reformation last last week. All right, it's right there in the curriculum. It's good stuff: salvation by faith, Martin Luther. Yep. Uh, but I have confidence—not in me, but in the great God that I serve. And thirdly, out of that, connected to it is boldness. When you and I examine ourselves, we make sure who we are in Christ, we pass the test, we can go out and speak to anyone and speak to them of the love of Christ, of a, of a judgment day that is coming, and of the seriousness of life that it's not just this. I'm not just chemicals. worth, or maybe inflation, $10, I don't know. No, I'm a human being with a soul that's going to last forever. And I can go out with that assurance and confidence and boldness and declare to the world that our faith is real. It is alive because he is alive. We serve a risen savior, hallelujah. I want to leave you with these words of encouragement as you think about self-examination Don't be afraid to peer into the inner parts of your soul and ask the Lord to bring you to a place of humility and honesty and to work on those areas. And here are the words of encouragement. The beauty of our Christian experience is this. We're not what we used to be, and we're not yet what we're going to be, but we need to try to reach what we are supposed to be every day more like Jesus, our savior, amen. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we delight in your word. We thank you that you encourage us, that you have given us all things pertaining to godliness, that your promises are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. So encourage your people this morning, help them realize you are for them, You are with them, and you'll continue with them until Jesus comes again, where we go to be with you. Uh, Bless us uh, as we sing and as we think about these thoughts in Jesus' name, amen.